When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hey everyone, thanks so much for joining me. So my guest, Leslie Patterson, is an absolute powerhouse, screenwriter, executive producer, and world champion triathlete. Yes. The story of how she got the Netflix hit All Quiet on the Western Front made is like a movie in of itself. She literally swam with a broken arm off the coast of Costa Rica in order to get money to pay for the option for the book. Stay tuned for that story. It's a good one. Now, All Quiet on the Western Front is based on the classic German World War I novel from 1929 by Eric Maria Remarque. It was also made into a movie in 1930. Now, more than 90 years later, a new adaptation of the novel has become a critically acclaimed hit. Its unrelenting depiction of the horrors of war has resonated. The film by German director Edward Berger won seven BAFTAs just a few weeks ago, including Best Adapted Screenplay for Leslie Patterson and Best Picture. The film is also up for nine Academy Awards, also including Adapted Screenplay and Best Picture. I was so honored to talk to Leslie Patterson about her incredible 16-year journey with this film. It's a true journey of endurance as well as talking about her process with her writing partners and team adapting this classic novel, the difficulties, the challenges, and so much more. Leslie Patterson, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. It's an honor. So... Seven BAFTAs, including screenplay, Oscar-nominated. It's really well-deserved. You must be feeling great. Yeah, can't believe it, to be honest. It's very surreal. Um, After fighting so long to get this going and being on the outside for so long, all of a sudden the door is open. All Quiet on the Western Front, a classic German book from 1929. And I understand that 16 years ago, you kind of rediscovered the book at a bookstore event. So what made this Scottish lass and your writing partner, Ian, say, yes, this is the one. We're going to option this. Yeah. So, I I mean, I think for me personally, it really was about the thematic essence of 
the book. I mean, obviously it's gorgeous, it's poetic, uh, all of those kinds of things, but the thematic essence of the betrayal of a youthful generation just seemed to strike a chord with me um, because I think that, that it transcends uh, countries and cultures um, and as a sort of a Scottish lassie always being the underdog fighting back you know them sort of having to face the upper brass in a way and the upper brass controlling them that that appealed to me as well and then seeing it through the eyes of what we see as the enemy that was fascinating to me um, told through the German perspective because I've never seen anything like that uh, in cinema before, or, or certainly not much of it. Um, and I felt like that was a story that needed to be told. So, yeah, that's when we embarked on it. And then my writing partner at the time, Ian, uh, he was he was in the military himself. And in fact, his grandfather was in World War One and signed up for the war when he was too young. Uh, and died through injuries of of the war uh, from being gassed. So he had a real personal connection to the material as well. So it was one of those things that just as outsiders, we 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 kind of we went for it. I mean, we just gave it gave it a try, right? You know, no harm, no foul. And we and, and World War One is such an amazing war cinematically to investigate. Um, so we approached the estate um, and it was New York University Press that were kind of in charge of that. And we managed, the rights were free. We managed to option the rights. And that was as, as shocking to us as it was probably to everyone else. So <laughs> we just begged and said, this is our take. This is what we want to do. Um, how's about you give us a shot? And they did. And... Yeah, we thought, oh, this is going to be great. This is going to be easy. We're going to get it made. This is going to be awesome. And it wasn't. <laughs> 16 years in the making. But in order to understand those, the journey, you have to understand your journey, how you really kept this alive. Um, you are a three-time world champion triathlete. Triathlete, that means swimming, cycling, and running, right? It is. Huge. Um <laughs> I think I read somewhere that you were 15, you were representing Scotland and then Great Britain. Talk about this writing and being a triathlete. How do those things converge? Yeah, so what's interesting about endurance sport is it's almost like a form of meditation. You're out there for hours doing this rhythmic motion. And so the parts of your brain that you access when you're doing that uh, can often sort of be quite ethereal and deep thinking. And I would spend hours just imagining stories and ideas and really thinking about myself and the world and things that moved me. Um, so that's probably why it lended itself to writing, you know, and creation. And I studied my undergraduate as well as my master's degree in theatre and film. So I knew that I always wanted to pursue it in some capacity. I just didn't know how. Um, and I always thought that when I retired from sport, that would be where I would go. Uh, but simultaneously, of course, I was I was kind of writing and, and developing this script and trying to get it off the ground and doing a couple of other projects and trying to understand the business. So, um, you know, the skills, they really transfer over amazingly well. Um, 
because in sports to to be the best in the world you have you have to have creativity in terms of how you get there whether it's uh dealing with injury illness which i have lyme's disease chronic lyme's disease um whether it's just having a different philosophy of training uh that better suits you emotionally or mentally or where you're at at any given time so that really helped and then on the creative side certainly with screenwriting and filmmaking just durability to keep going uh you know it's a failure-based business and I was so used to dealing with that in sport that you just understand that if you focus on your craft and excellence of your craft rather than necessarily the outcome then that outcome will come and that's what happened in sport and the thing about it is that this actually paid for all quiet rights for all quiet on the Western Front. Um, what happened in Costa Rica, and, and what does that mean? You paid the rights through the sports. Talk about yeah. that. Well, you know how do you how do you pay for an option when you're just an every an everyman person, just somebody that's you know paying their bills through odd jobs and bits and pieces. And for me, you know, being a, a professional triathlete, you don't earn that much money. The prize money, the endorsements aren't that big. Um, so really, we were paying our bills through. My husband was an academic at the time. So this extra money we needed for the option, which was anywhere between ten and $15,000 a year, we kind yeah, of relied that's a on... Chunk. It's a chunk. It's a chunk. You know, maybe not to some big producers or studios, but it's a chunk to, to just us. Um, so, I, you know, we would focus on races where... Um, that had good prize purses, where, you know, I had a shot. Um, and that would, you know, because you can never lie on race earnings because you just don't know uh, so on this specific race in Costa Rica we were um it was uh, the option was very very close to being due and we didn't have the money and so I decided I'd go out to this race because I was very fit at the time and uh, given given sort of who was racing and the prize purse I thought I had a good shot well the day before the race I was pre-riding the course which is quite common because I do off-road triathlon which is mountain biking and trail running so you recce the course just like you would in kind of Formula One you know the rocks the ditches the downhills the uphills and so I was pre-riding it and I fell off and broke my shoulder and so was just totally devastated obviously because I thought not only have I done that but now we're gonna lose the option and my husband who is a sports psychologist said well let's break this down he said can you can you ride your bike and so I kind of propped my hand up my hand on top of the handlebars and I thought well I can ride if it's flat and if there's any descents or technical stuff I'll just get off and walk okay I can do the run it's not too painful I'll just take painkillers the up and down motion's not too bad as long as I'm not moving my arm (laughs) swimming no fucking way so um so I got down to the water's edge and, and my husband, Simon, is like, well, listen, you know, why don't you try it one-armed? You're great <laughs> at the one-arm drill. Just give it a go. So I thought, you know, he's right. I might as well just try because what's the worst that can happen? I do 100 meters out, I come back, no big deal. So this was a mile swim in the ocean through the waves. So off I go and... Uh, it's exhausting, but I'm not doing too bad. But I come out of the water about 12 minutes down from the leader. And I was so elated from having done this. I just kind of didn't really give a shit. So I got <laughs> on the bike and I just I just kind of went for it, you know, because I thought there's nothing else to lose. So I cycled my way up to second 
and then uh, ran my way into first and won the race. You won. <laughs> That's incredible. I, I'm probably not the first one who said it, but this has to be your next movie. <laughs> I know. I know. I oh my God, you've got it. And I've been approached by a couple of people, so we'll see. But I think it's just that sense of resiliency, you know. Uh, I've faced a lot of adversity along the way, whether it's, you know, in my personal life and my physical life and my emotional life. And, you know, I think I've, I've, you know, we know from a neuroscience perspective that you get stronger by facing adversity. So, um, yeah, I think just all those things and then just that drive, we'd had this option for so long and we were so passionate about telling the story. We knew we could do it. I don't know why, but we just knew we could. Mm -hmm. uh, so we gave it a go. And, uh, yeah, we were lucky enough to sort of maintain that option that year and, and going. Let's get into to the process of adapting it. You're adapting this book. It's been done before. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes. Or a long time ago, but anyway, what changes did you make when you started looking at doing this today? So one of the biggest things that we did to start with was research, understanding World War I in the historical context. So we read a lot of German trench warfare diaries, a lot of, a lot of kind of just information around the war, Germany's position in it, and so on. Um, and a lot of analysis about it, as well as reading the book multiple, multiple times and really digging into the big themes of the novel, which for us was the betrayal of the youthful generation and the senseless killing, you know, that mechanization of war. Um, uh, and so, you know, to that end, we ended up finding a storyline that we felt propelled the, um, the energy of of this story because the book itself is almost like excerpts of a diary while beautiful it's not very directional and we felt like the story needed some kind of propulsion through it some kind of ticking clock and so the storyline of the armistice in the last six hours not only did it give us historical context but it gave us a dramatic through through line to really sort of hang our hats on um so that was our our big departure from the from the novel you changed it like one year or so, right? Yeah, well, we kind of condensed it. We we condensed it um, just because Paul and the book is there for four years and, you know, it spans across a lot of time and we wanted some sense of immediacy, you know, to put the audience in this situation where it was very looming and uh, immersive and, you know, there was really no way out and that would have been just more difficult across a longer passage of time. And we loved this last six hours of the, of, of the war. We felt like that was a microcosm of the war in general where the war was over and yet all these men were still getting sent through death that was was everything that the book was trying to say um so yeah so then we we sort of tore up the book we had got got loads of of, of copies of the book and tore it up into different scenes put it up on the wall tried to kind of pick through what do we want to keep what do we not want to keep and where does it go like that and then we wrote multiple drafts so the whole process took us about two years 
Um, and then we embarked on, okay, what next? You know, as outsiders, uh, writer, producers, how do you get a film made? And of course, 16 years ago, the landscape was so different. You couldn't have made a foreign language film for this kind of budget uh, about World War One and about the Germany, <laughs> about the German side, German perspective. So we were pitching it as an English speaking language film with German accents. And we went to German directors first, but they were all very scared of the project and the material, uh, given it's such a classic. Um, and we, um, yeah, we just went through multiple phases of having different directors on board, different actors on board, different producers, one of which went to jail. I mean, it was just a comedy oh, event. What oh, happened there? Yeah, well, he was uh, embezzling uh, Belgian tax incentives. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, yeah, and we almost lost lost the option. So See, this movie gets better and better. <laughs> the movie about the movie. I, I want to get back to that, but I, one more question about the process of writing in general. I spoke to to one of your sound designers, Martin Stemple, who, who fascinatingly told me that, of course, there's no audio reference when they were researching to do it. So right. they used these old letters that soldiers sent home um, and how how they described it to actually design the sound of your film. Do you have research, things like that, that you use that yes. made it so personal? Lots of letters, lots of trench war diaries. And then Ed as well, when he did a pass on the script, when we got together with him, he read a lot of letters as well. And it really sets the scene emotionally about the, the state of these men and where they were at. And it gives you a sense of the, the sort of tone of it all um in their in their world because it's very different from an outside perspective to imagine that now knowing what we know um so yeah that for me it was a trench diaries that that was a big one that must have been difficult to read it was and I think you know people ask us what kept you going through all these years to want to get this made and I honestly think it was the year of research that we did as we dug into this war and the impact it had on millions of lives of course 17 million odd died but you know what was the impact I I cycle and run through the landscape of Scotland and much of Europe where I train. I train a lot in France as well. And there's memorials everywhere for World War One with thousands of names. And you think whole towns and villages were wiped out. Can you imagine that as a wife, as a mother, as a sister? I, I can't, you know. And yeah, I think we're so far removed from that now. And yet we're so close to it with what's happening. Yeah, you were mentioning that that went through so many iterations when you were producing it. I read that Mimi Leader was going to direct and Daniel Radcliffe was sort of half attached. But when your team finally was assembled, when the German director came on, um, I'm married to a screenwriter. I know after 16 years, this is your baby. What was it like when when they started to come in and make their changes and things like that? Do you know what? Honestly, it was a relief. And I'll tell I'll I'll tell you why because Ed is such a visionary, and Malta is such a a guiding light of a producer that we felt so confident with them, like we never had before, and their vision, their take, wanting to do it in 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 German as well, 
it just felt right. I can't even explain it. It just felt so right. And I think this is where, as a screenwriter, you can't get precious. And we put on our producer's hat because we're executive producers on this project. And we put on our producer's hat and we said, you know what? This has to be Ed's. We have to hand it over and let him do what he needs to do. Otherwise, this won't be the film that it could be. Um, so, and one of our biggest joys is collaboration, is to see the wonderful input of these artists and during this kind of awards campaign or press campaign that we've done to meet the makeup artist you know to really talk with all of the heads of departments it's been amazing to see what they've brought to the table and that's what ed has allowed each of these folks to do is while he's kept a vision streamlined he's allowed them to come to the table with their own perspective but a perspective that's following towards a vision that they all have bought into and that's why it's so powerful. What kind of things did, in terms of the script itself, did Ed um, bring to the table? What sort of changes or, or additions did he make from the German perspective that you may not have had from the beginning? So the big one was that this could not be a hero's journey. That, that, that Germany views war from a place of shame. So it cannot be an adventure. So he really focused on that and to that end he went back to the book and brought in a couple of critical scenes that we had taken out um and he just really refined that sensibility um and then he really sort of he humanized some of the the relationships a little bit more but from that german sensibility so between cat and paul like one of my most favorite scenes that he wrote uh is the latrine scene mm -hmm. where Paul is reading out the letter um from from Cat at home. Uh so there was there was elements like that that I feel would have almost been impossible for Ian and I to have written either that well or or that authentically because we're not German. But what we could add was an outside in perspective. So it's like you've got this unique combination of outside in from Ian and I, this historical context, then you've got the inside out perspective of of ed and that's why it's probably appealing to a wider audience because it's got authenticity but it's got perspective so it was probably the best thing that happened that all these iterations with radcliffe and and whatever didn't happen in this case thank god thank god but we didn't at the time you're going where you think you need to to get a project off the ground you know daniel radcliffe was 16 years ago and we were like, okay, how do you get a project like this off the ground? It's got to be English speaking because it's 16 years ago, can't raise finance. You know, you've got to find an actor that's worth something in that age category. Well, he was Harry Potter world and that felt right. So, but like looking back on it now, I mean, look at the actors that we got, no names, like unknowns. And that's how it had to be. That's what was right. So again, a huge learning curve, but also the landscape of film has changed. Yeah, talk about that. What's happened between 16 years ago and now that finance this type of movie? Yeah, so I think with streamers coming on board, it's all of a sudden opened up the appetite for different cultural stories to be told. Um, you know, a lot of companies like Netflix are really leaning into local language content and their membership base. And as a consequence... Um, it's given a, a, a playing field uh, to investigate that. And we know, I mean, 
some of the top ranked TV shows and films on these streamers are foreign or foreign films. Um, so there's a greater appreciation for that. There's different worlds that people want to know about. Um, and then World War One is a war has a different uh, meaning and understanding around it now, especially after 1917 came out. Um, you know, cinema was very American centric. So everything was about World War Two because that's where the biggest influence was. Uh, also, as well, it's an easier war. It's black and white. There was definite baddies and definite goodies. So that plugs into what we sort of have seen in the past is effects of storytelling. But now we sort of, we appreciate a deeper assessment of of some of these thematic essence, you know, messages. Um, so there's many different things that have changed. Um, and then it's about finding the right director with the right vision that has the courage to tell it. And, you know, waiting for that right time in a way. Uh, so that's been a huge lesson, that's for sure. Adapting, I mean, this is really a classic book. Have you gotten any complaints of any changes you've made or are people precious about the book? I'd say mainly Germans are precious about the book. That's why a German filmmaker had to make it. Because mm -hmm. then he could truly stand up and say, no, I stand by my vision here because it's Ooh. authentic. Um, so in that regard, you know, the German uh, attitude towards the film has been maybe a little bit more polarized, like a lot of really positive to support. And then some folks that have been frustrated that it's departed from the book at all. But I think that just, um, you know, uh, uh, yeah, kind of leans into what is an adaptation and what does it mean? And really, for us, an adaptation means it's a perspective on a material. Uh, and your perspective, your lens comes from today. And today means we know what happened after this war. When Remark wrote this, he did not. And we felt like that perspective was important. Um, so, yeah. And then, you know, you can't fit everything into a two and a half hour movie. Mm -hmm. So then the important aspects of it, for instance, we didn't go back to the home front because we didn't have the time. We didn't think it was right. Uh, but things like the letters back home, they referenced the essence of what that home front visit meant. They could not fit in anymore. They didn't have a home to go to because of what they because they were now changed, uh, you know, as an artifact of going through war. So you take the essence of some aspects of the book and you you, you kind of create something new. Uh, that will reflect it so again it's just a sort of understanding of adaptation you're not going to please any everyone no, that, but that's with all adaptations I mean that's just the name of the game yeah but working with Ed and and with this whole team what have you learned about Germans modern Germans relationship to their history yeah it's one of shame and I did not ever appreciate that to the extent that it is it's imbued in every fiber of their being um they cannot see anything heroic about war at all because they've always been on the losing side and they've always been the instigators across this century. So, and they're still very close to that. And that is the essence of every beat of this story and every shot of, of this film. Um, and each head of department largely was Germans and you get German and you can feel that. 
Um, what were you and, and the rest of you hoping modern audiences were going to take from this today, 2022, 23? I think really to raise a discourse about having empathy is maybe too, is not right of a word, but putting yourself in other people's shoes, essentially, the other side. Because too often right now, we have polarized thinking, they're wrong, we are right. And we don't even try and get to the bottom of why, how, what, the implications of it. So I'd like to think that this film opens up a discourse about that and helps us maybe self-reflect, look at our actions uh, towards who we deem to be our enemies. And you only have to look at what's happening in Ukraine and this sort of anger and resentment towards Russia, but not to say that what they're doing is right at all, but look at the everyman in Russia and how they're manipulated and controlled to do this. It is shocking. So what can we, yeah, what can we, what can we learn from that? moving forward we have a couple a few minutes left here i want to go back to you <laughs> you've now done this this 16 years and unbelievable story to get this made you're now a producer and oscar nominated most likely winner soon <laughs> in a couple of weeks what is your plan as a producer and writer and what are you going to do going forward yeah, so I work exclusively with my husband, Simon, uh, who was a psychologist by training, but he helped in this script along its journey and is now a full-time writer, producer himself. So we have a bunch of different projects on the go, which is mega exciting. We have one in Scotland. I'm really keen to go back home, which is a psychological thriller. We have one set in Africa and Ghana, which is a historical epic, uh, which is a true story. We have one in Ireland set in the gypsy travelers community, but in all of them, in all of them, there's kind of this sense of uh, overcoming adversity um, and uh, really finding meaning through pain and suffering. So I would say that that's kind of like a, a, a guiding light of ours, but we, we just want to tell great stories and interesting worlds that have an impact. But you don't have to compete for your options anymore, do you? I hope, I hope, I hope not. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, we're at this weird transition point where, you know, we haven't we haven't sort of gotten any other gigs yet. So we're kind of like, I think we're on the cusp of doing some great, wonderful things and earning hopefully some good money by it. I mean, I have a lot of faith, um, but we're still balancing a lot to sort of maintain our lives. But Are you still competing? Um, I still do some races, so really quick funny story. Last year, um, I did not think I was going to race, um, but I, but I, but I ended up doing the USA National Championships and winning it by like I don't know ten minutes or something. So when I found out that the World Championships uh, were the weekend after our European premiere of All Quiet in Zurich, and they were going to be held in Italy, only a five-hour drive away, I thought. Do you know that's kind of cool? I could be on the red carpet one weekend in my in my heels, and then get in the mud the next weekend. So, and I had not anticipated racing racing at that level again. So I rocked up to Italy, and then um, what was what was actually really cool was I was not you know I'm now racing against girls half my age, right? I'm forty two, and they're in early twenties. And in the press conference, these young girls were telling stories of when I was 12 years old, I used to watch Leslie win races and I was inspired by her. And I oh, thought, that's oh my great. God, 
<laughs> which was great, which was cool, you know. So I ended up racing there and I got fourth. So I was, uh, you know, pretty, pretty happy to still kind of be in contention. Yeah, but, you know, more than anything, sport fuels my soul. I love being in the environment. I love being in the community. The type of sport I do, Xterra, is a wonderful community. I've missed those guys. I think I'll always jump into little races here and there, you know, and I still train about three hours a day. Um, I still, like, watch a lot of films as I'm training, listen to a lot of things. It's my thinking time. Do you sleep? I know, right? Gosh, not not I, which is not good because I really believe in, in, you know, seven to eight hours a night you should really be getting. But I tell you, during this last month, it's been more like five. Well, now eight. you're on, on on adrenaline high from all this very well-deserved accolades you're getting for this movie. Leslie, thank you so much. It was a real joy to to talk to you about this movie and, and to hear your story. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much to Leslie Patterson. All Quiet on the Western Front is now on Netflix, and good luck at the Oscars. And thank you so much for joining us. Pop Culture Confidential is a part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Science! 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 Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist Podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes! Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes! Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes... Yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast.